I sit at the intersection of science, entrepreneurship and policy. One almost doesn't work without the other. Science needs to be present because we need the innovation, we need the research and development. Entrepreneurship needs to be present, in my opinion, because a lot of the vehicles that we currently have are slow to implement. And then, obviously, we need policy because, like it or not, the policies that are made literally directly affect our access to vaccines, trade deals, access to literally everything. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, and welcome to 1000 Voices, where we are on a mission to speak to, sit down and discuss with 1000 Black British changemakers. Now, today, we've got another very, very special guest on the podcast, and I was finding it quite difficult to narrow down and give her, you know, narrow down everything she does, because she does a lot of stuff, a lot of amazing work, and narrow it down into a nice, concise intro, but I'm going to give it a try. So... Our guest today, first of all, she's a serial entrepreneur. She's been involved in the business world in a number of different capacities. She's co-founded businesses. She's working as a consultant. She's been involved in the business as a director, as a non-executive director. She has a heart for Africa and also for just empowering and uplifting people, especially from people from underrepresented backgrounds. And above all, she's a recognized global leader. Um, in the public health and uh, the global health space. She's won a number of different awards. She was recognized in 2016 by the European Commission. And up until very recently, she was very recently awarded, awarded as one of the 40 Black Future Leaders by Black Culture Archives. So that's a very concise intro. But without further ado, we have the very amazing Dr. Elsa Zakeng, AKA the science entrepreneur on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different intro. I Never really quite called myself a serial entrepreneur, but hey, well, what's, what's, what's the definition of a serial entrepreneur? Is it someone that's started more than one business? I mean, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I guess to show you how, I guess, unassuming I am by the things that I do. So, but yeah, no, anyways, thank you so much for having me. No, it's, it's all good. Thank you for coming on. And now, actually, I'm very excited to have you on. Like, like I was saying, your background is so varied that is so layered so multifaceted mm -hmm. and uh i just you know very excited to have you on and come to speak a bit more about you your motivations the work you do and all of that stuff so mm -hmm. thank you for coming to the podcast once again mm -hmm. so let's start off here mm -hmm. usually we like to start off chronologically okay and you know going to background and upbringing that kind of thing to set some context but before we get into that first question i'd like to ask you is with everything that you do What's the why that drives you? Oh, starting with a reflective question. What is the why? I would say the why is impact. And that is impact across, again, science is the thread that runs through almost everything that I've done. And that is impacting, number one, um, the scientific community. Number two, impacting black people. Number three, impacting women. And if we're look, talking geographically, I would say impacting obviously the continent of Africa and by virtue of having lived here for the past 15 years, Europe and really enabling that partnership between Europe and Africa. Um, it has been a contentious one. It still is a contentious one. Um, but trying to hope, well, hopefully make it become one that is less contentious and that we can actually work together for a more equal world. So yeah, I'll say impact across those themes. Great. All right. Thank you for that. So let's kick things off. You said mm -hmm. that you've been living here for the past 15 years. That is correct. Can you paint a picture as to what your childhood was like, you know, where you grew up, sure. uh, and what the environment was like and mm. 
we start from there? So I was actually born in Leeds, um, but I grew up in Cameroon, in Yaoundé, to be specific. That's the capital of Cameroon. Um, I went to boarding school in Cameroon, an all-girl boarding school for five years. I moved to the UK when I was 15. Um, I went to Reading to Queen Anne's, another boarding school, all-girls boarding school. There's a theme there. My parents are obviously on like <laughs> keeping me in all-girls boarding school. Um, so I did all-girls boarding school for seven years, five years, Cameroon, two years here. Then I went to uni to do my BSc molecular biology. But I guess more pointedly to your question, what was my childhood like? Um, I came from, I mean, I came from, I come from a very loving family. So two parents, there's four of us, three girls, one boy. I have never wanted or lacked for anything, um, to be honest, probably consider myself quite spoiled and privileged in many senses of the world, of the word. Um, my dad is a scientist. My mom is a pharmacist. So science and was very not was not far-fetched at all to be honest it was probably quite the expected career choice um, my mom is also a business owner so again entrepreneurship and business um, not far-fetched at all um, but what I found was quite interesting was I was on a panel at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine probably in 2015 or 2016 and someone asked a question asked a question about the representation of women and girls in science or STEM in general and something that was interesting was that she stated a statistic that what they found in this study that girls who went to all girls boarding schools, well, all girls schools, doesn't have to be boarding school, all girls schools, um, tended to stay in science longer. And that was predominantly because during, well, when they were growing up, really, um, they were during those teenage years when they found out that they were in classes with other girls that didn't feel shy to either give a wrong answer or to put their hands up whereas when they found that they were in classes with um, what in mixed schools either the boys would tease if they said something wrong and then the girls would then shy away and that was the first time i actually heard about that study and then we looked around at each other and there were four of us on a panel four women all in science at least at phd level and we all went to all girls schools so we t then i thought okay well maybe there's a thing that maybe there's a trick to that um and then i obviously went on to do my own research and yes that's definitely something that has been proven so i say that to say maybe that has um a part to play in why i've stayed in science this long and why i have never felt i don't know inferior or felt yeah. like that was something that was that was far-fetched or that i couldn't do um, and again, I came from a family home where it was very encouraged, encouraged. So my dad is my biggest champion, my mom. So she, um, so I realized that I actually came from a cocoon where I was encouraged to do all these things. And then I came, well, a lot, a lot of years later on and we're having all these conversations and I start realizing that all those things I perhaps took for granted were things that a lot of people, uh, you know, are not privileged to have. And then when opportunities came up to address them. So, for example, by being on a board of the Science and Industry Museum, um, I took upon that role. And one of the things that I do is really trying to champion opening up those spaces. So let's say a child is at home and that's not really encouraged. Hopefully they can find different communities and go to different spaces where they can be inspired to pursue um, these different career options. So 
yeah, hopefully that gives you a bit of a background as to my upbringing in in that sense. And so yeah, I've been in the UK since. No, it definitely does gives a lot a lot of context actually. Mm-hmm. That stat we spoke about with the young girls who go to all girls schools are more likely to stay in the STEM subjects for a longer period of time. I've never heard of that. The first time I ever hearing about it. Mm-hmm. And thinking about it, it makes some sense actually as well. With there's it's known anyways that with amongst there's certain fields that are very male dominated. Mm-hmm. STEM is one of them. You go into tech, engineering, etc., etc. You're going to find primarily men. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's obviously there's going to be a reason for that and then the way you've explained it there and then uh makes some sense and then it makes some sense as well when you look into some of the work you've got involved in later on which we will touch on later on but mm-hmm. you know the work you've got into trying to uh most work like promote some mm-hmm. um more diversity in stem and technology um makes some sense and sets a lot of context with Looking back a little bit, so with you and the family moving over, I'm assuming it's the, the whole family moved over to the UK. No, well. it's just me. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, don't assume. <laughs> okay. No, but. so sorry, just to that point, again, I was listening to a podcast and someone and the, the person being interviewed, he said he opened a podcast, his podcast by saying something that really defines him is that he was raised in South Chicago. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, so what is something that really defines me? Because I wasn't raised in one particular place. So when I, upon reflection, something that really defines me is I'm a child of a diplomat. And so what that means is that I've lived in a ton of different places. My accent sounds like this. It switches between (laughs) so many different (laughs) countries. I remember doing a presentation once (laughs) and at the end of the presentation, I was like, does anyone have any questions? And and the only question I got was, where's your accent from? I was like, girl, I don't don't know. (laughs) It's it's from everywhere that I've lived. So, yes, so to that point, um, essentially from I came here by myself. Um, I was in boarding school. I used to go back for holidays and then I came to uni and I've just been, yeah, yeah, by myself ever since. With you having lived in so many different places in your mm-hmm. childhood, did you, what impact do you feel like that's had on you today? It's an interesting one. This is a very personal question, Stephen. I didn't expect this. <laughs> um, a thousand voices, we keep on your toes here. <laughs> I know, <laughs> definitely. I would say it's made me very hyper-independent and that is a good thing and a bad thing and i've just recently come to accept that it has its advantages and its disadvantages advantages being you adapt you learn to swim at in in whatever the situation and i think that is has landed me very well in my career um i have i mean as you've said my career is so wide and vast and how i'm only 30 sometimes it shocks me and i don't really spend some time to think about to think about it so yes, those are the advantages of it. The disadvantages of it are that you don't know how to particularly build community. Mm. And that in itself is, um, yeah, can be challenging. And that's only because you're used to being on your own and you're used to the sink or swim situation. You're used to swimming by yourself. So either asking for help doesn't come naturally to you. And it crept up again a couple of weeks ago. So my best friend was moving houses and we all went over and, you know, she just bought her new home and all excited for her and um, helped her move in. And I said, I made a comment. I was like, yeah, when I moved, I did it by myself. And she was like, I'm sorry, what do you mean you did it by yourself? I was like, I hired a man in a van and we all moved my stuff in. And she was like, why didn't you, like, why didn't you say? And it was in that moment that I thought, yeah, I literally could have just sent a message, right? <laughs> but that just doesn't come naturally to me because I'm just used to doing it by myself, right? Like, my family's not here. 
Um, and it's not to say that all my friends, like if I reached out to any of them and told them they would jump and help me, like I have literally, I'm blessed with the friends I have, but it just doesn't come naturally to do that. So yeah, those are the advantages and disadvantages of it. Okay, perfect, thank you. And uh, next question I wanna ask is about you discovering your passion. Now to caveat or to add some context to that question, mm -hmm. when I was looking into your, into your profile, um, I can see that from very young, you started moving, going back home to Africa and doing some volunteering work. Um, I think you must have probably been about 16, 17. You was a teenager, yes. essentially, when I was looking. Oh my God, have you gone all the way back? Yeah, yeah. we do our research here. Mm. <laughs> but then, so you've, you've been doing that work from when you were young. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you've, uh, you've grown up with your parents in the, the science field. And that's obviously, you know, where you've embarked upon and gone and done your degree, done your PhD, and that's the field that you're in, the life mm -hmm. science specifically anyway. So it's like, um, what I'm wanting to find out is, uh, with you, with that, you going back to Africa and with you going and embarking upon the, in the science field, at what stage do you feel like you found your passion and how did you find it? Did you, did you know that was your passion back then or? So interestingly, I, if we take it a step back, so I got into science by a virtue of just not being good at history and geography. <laughs> it was very simple <laughs> for me. I never got geography. I still, my directions are still quite bad. Um, mm. My friends will tell you. Um, I um, I never got history. And I know someone said to me, I was like, how did you not get history? It's just remembering dates. Yeah, no, doesn't make too, too much sense to me. And I never got literature because describing curtains and everything that came with it did not come naturally to me either. So what were my other options, <laughs> right? Scientists mm -hmm. and biology made 100 and you know made all the sense to me. So for starters, that was when I knew, okay, well, that's the direction that we're going in. Now, what we're going to do with it, we're yet to see. Started off actually wanting to do medicine. That didn't work out. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, so what else are we going to do? A couple of things, again, which is that whole nature versus nurture. Um, by virtue of my dad being um, in the UN, I think at the time that you're talking about, my first work experience was in Ghana, because at the time we were based in Ghana, in Accra. And my dad was UNAID something, at the can't remember his exact title, exact position. And he was traveling around the different, um, different regions in, in Ghana to just look at the toll of HIV and AIDS um, in the different regions, their access to antiretroviral drugs, their, um, their communities, and how UNAIDS is actually, well, how the work that they're doing is actually benefiting and impacting the different communities. And there was one holiday, I think I went on this trip with him. And we traveled all the way. Any Ghanaians listening? Actually, you're a Ghanaian. Yeah. Um, I did. <laughs> uh, we lived in Accra. And then we drove up to Kumasi, did some work in Kumasi, drove all the way up north to Boga, Tamale, Wa. And anyone who's not Ghanaian is literally like driving from, I guess, the south of Ghana right up into the north and um, worked with different communities out there. Did some work with the Society of Women Living with AIDS in Africa. So I would say that what I did at the time was just expose myself as much as possible to anything that I found remotely interesting. So I obviously did that type of work. I did work with, um, I think it was the International Organization for Migration, and that was work around tuberculosis and looking at migration and how I think it was refugees coming in and who were not tested, um, either were carrying TB and how, what sort of regulations could be put around that. So obviously very science things, very science-y-ish things. Mm. 
But also I had an interest in events and events management. And so I went online again in Ghana and I found an event management company called Lion Hearts and I reached out to them. I think I emailed them or something at the time mm. and said, can I do an internship for you? And then the ladies were like, yeah, sure, come, come along. And so I went and did that. But then that part, my parents did not know that. So my parents thought I was going to the International Organization of Migration in the morning, which was true. Mm -hmm. They thought I was spending my whole day there. But I had this deal with the lady that <laughs> I used to work with there. So yeah. I will work there till 12 and then I'll leave and then I'll go to the events company and I'll work there till like five, six years and then I'll go home. What kind of events? Oh, everything. Wedding, parties, 50th birthdays, christenings, everything. And I was involved in decor, arranging flower arrangements, um, just venues, like, yeah, the whole nine yards. So again, goes to show two completely different things in, in quotes, but then I just explored as much as I as much as I could. Right. And then I guess from you doing um doing that volunteer work up and down Ghana, um and with your background, having lived in a, a, a lot of different countries, I suppose, is all of these, it wasn't necessarily, if you correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't necessarily like a one experience. It was just your life experience up until that point where you discovered, and just trying out new things where you discovered, okay, wow, okay, there's a problem here and this is what I'm passionate about and this is what I want to do something about this. Absolutely. Um, it was um, by doing a lot of different things, I could say, okay, this is what I like and this is what I don't like. And this is something that I always say, that sometimes we focus too much on okay what is my passion or what what is what is it that i want to do but sometimes the um, even stronger question is what what is it i do not want to do right and just by method of elimination you're able to arrive at your answer and um same thing happened after i did my phd it was well nine months into my phd i was like okay i love science i hate academia okay not hate I don't. <laughs> I would prefer not to stay in academia. Yeah. And I remember that everyone was asking me, so what are you going to do? I'm like, hmm, no idea, but we're going to figure it out, right? So it's not always having the answer, but just knowing this is not what I'm going to do. No, for sure. I'm a massive, strong advocate for trying out new things. Mm -hmm. That's how you're going to discover stuff. Like I was talking to someone quite recently and she was talking about how she doesn't know what she's passionate about, etc. I'm like, get out there and try new things. Exactly. Read more books, mm -hmm. meet more people, mm -hmm. go to more events. Mm -hmm. And over time, you're going to discover what makes you happy, what makes you sad, what, you know, what lights that fire inside of you. And it's in doing that, that's how you're going to discover stuff, but not necessarily by you know just sitting back and if you sit at home you're not necessarily going to discover mm -hmm. you know, what you're passionate about so um for sure um, sorry not even to cut you short yeah. there but i think another thing is by looking at what upsets me mm. and seeing that reaction so there are a lot of things that i would look at right let's say i love events but there's nothing particular there that really upsets me and i think um one thing I quickly realized what I was passionate about and what I was going to be committed to was what kept me up at night by just really upsetting me. And some of the things that really upset me were when I did some that that work experience and looking at how women were disproportionately affected. Um, you know, when you're looking at essentially the women in communities who had HIV and AIDS and they had HIV and AIDS because perhaps they were contracted by from the man, but because the community was very patriarchal. Um, the man uh, was let, you know, given a pass and the woman was kicked out. 
and those things really upset me and they upset me still to this day right and by just knowing how upset i was i was like okay i'm definitely going to try and do something about this and that when you feel that feeling to me it's very much lean into that feeling and lean into okay that's clearly something i'm passionate about it that's clearly something that um that triggers me right how do i do i want to do something about it that's the first question and if i want to do something about it what is that thing that i am going to do about it um so yeah do you feel like we've made progress uh in or well, back home in particular back in africa from back then when you first started going back and volunteering and doing the work there up until now uh and it's very it's very broad the question actually because there's so many different health facets and things you're talking specifically about hiv aids there mm-hmm. um but it's a million different things we can mm-hmm. talk about vaccine efficacy and all sorts of things but do you feel like very generally speaking when it comes to public health back home we've made progress from then until now no absolutely i think we have made progress but i guess the real question is is the progress fast enough is the progress what it could be um are we hitting the targets that either we set for ourselves or that we think that w- our countries have the potential to hit i don't think we are and then obviously when you bring in a different lens of what happens in high income countries again in quotation marks versus countries that happen south of the sahara um again you're looking at a different type of inequality right so then you start looking at access to to drugs to i mean we all saw it play out with access to vaccines obviously everyone can have their own opinions about vaccines whether you take it or not but my stance on that is very much at least make it um, available and then let people have the choice whether they want to take it or not the same way it happened here in the UK a lot of people decided not to take the vaccines as, as much as people decided to take the vaccines so I very much think that not having access to something is in itself an inequality now the choice people choose to make once they have access to that you can't take that away that's human choice right so in terms of equalizing um that i don't think we are we still have a long way to go as we have obviously seen um recently yeah do you know a book called development is freedom no actually because when you was talking it was just reminded me of this book called okay. development as freedom mm-hmm. super super good book it's by a man called amartya sen i might be pronouncing his first name wrong okay but he defines development as having uh freedom basically having mm-hmm. freedoms to do whatever you want so the freedom to decide whether i'm gonna eat or not eat the freedom mm-hmm. to decide whether i'm gonna have a shower or not shower if you don't have the choice then mm-hmm. that's you're not developed in that in that sense and when you're talking there about um the vaccine mm-hmm. and some people deciding to take it some people not take decide not to take it mm-hmm. and then if you look at the global south it's like they didn't even have the option to make the decision exactly. whether they want to take it or not um it's a massive inequality mm-hmm. in that sense uh, and I was—I remember reading some some stories about it, and it's quite political as well, actually, when it comes to that kind of thing. Because I was reading about how some—I um, can't remember specific countries, but it was some countries that w- were offering more than other maybe European counterparts were offering to get doses of the COVID vaccine, but we're not receiving it. And then other European counterparts, maybe because of relationships and whatnot, were receiving all of the doses at a cheaper cost of what the African countries were offering for for those vaccine doses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, when you look at it like that, it's more than just the it's very political um very political but but that that's it right so interesting going back to your intro how i actually introduce myself (laughs) usually Mm. is that i sit at the intersection of science entrepreneurship and policy 
And a lot of times some people ask why those three heads or why those three themes? I'm like, because one almost doesn't work without the other. All three of them cannot operate in silos. Science needs to be present because we need the innovation, we need the research and development. Entrepreneurship needs to be present, in my opinion, because a lot of the vehicles that we currently have are slow to implement. So we need fast moving, agile vehicles to get things from um, research and development to the people, to the masses. And then obviously we need policy because like it or not, the policies that are made in number 10 <laughs> in Chatham House in Brussels, um, whether you, okay, we're out of the, uh, <laughs> let's not go there. We Brexited, yeah. but let's not go there. Um, but you know, the decisions that are made there literally directly affect our access to these different um, op well, vaccines, trade deals, access to literally everything. So unless we're able to sort of complete that silo and um, complete that circle and s encourage collaboration and not operating in silos, we end up just in a vacuum, right? Where scientists are talking to scientists and essentially you're preaching to the converted. Like, okay, scientists, I, in my opinion, a lot of scientists get, like if you do an uh, an innovation and explaining that to another scientist is pretty easy. That is obviously a broad statement, but in comparison to explaining mm. it to someone who is not a scientist, um, it obviously will take a lot more to do that. Say similarly, creating policies. Again, you can s argue in, in all your different political spheres, but until that policy is enacted and until that policy actually benefits the people, um, then again, in my opinion, that's still perpetrating um, inequalities. And then of course, entrepreneurship, right? Um, we create things that we are passionate about to serve and to work with communities that we are either in or we care about. And so all three need to work together. So to your point about political, well, of course it's political, right? And you need to be able to operate in those three different spheres. I mean, not particularly one person, but mm. companies have an R&D department. They have a legal department. They probably have someone who advises them on the policies. And, and yeah, it's who has the biggest usually who has the biggest teams and the biggest bank accounts wins, mm. so, yeah. So do you feel that with um, the health in back home, and back home in the global south, essentially, and things not accelerating or moving as quickly as it should have moved, do you feel like that's a leadership issue? Not necessarily only in government, but just people that have leadership positions in maybe global organizations and yeah, in office or whatnot. Do you feel like that's a leadership issue back home? Of course, I think I'll start off with leadership issues in government. Mm. Right? Let's move away from every all leaders in every other organization. In my opinion, leaders are put in government to serve the people. So your job is to do what you think is best for the people. Your job is to protect the people. If you fail to do that, again, in my opinion, you have somewhat failed at your job. So if you fail to, pro to create a system, right, where um, everyone has access to healthcare, again, basic right, access to education, basic mm. right, access to employment opportunities, again, in my opinion, basic right, then there is something missing in that leadership position um, from a governmental standpoint. We can argue till the cows come home about um, intentions and 
corruption and all these different things and you know what other organizations are doing but like they say in french a la base <laughs> i speak <laughs> french as well like at the end like the foundation right is very much as a government that is your duty little things like i say little but things like passing on laws to say 11% of your gdp is going to be directed towards healthcare that is your job as the leader to make sure that that happens no country in africa currently has that granted i know that not, i don't know the stats for all the countries in the west but i think the uk is currently at about 9% of its gdp goes out to is goes to healthcare i don't know what it is now with inflation and everything so mm. please nobody quote me or come for me to correct the <laughs> stat this is probably the statistics mm. might be old um but i think countries in africa um like south africa um i think the last i checked it gave a, it was about 6 to 7% of its gdp went towards healthcare mm. and a lot of the other countries are lagging at like 2 3 4% so we can argue about um inequalities in access to vaccines and inequalities and all these different things but as a country how are you building your own healthcare system how are you ensuring that the people who live in that country um are able to have access to what they need when they need it that's your you know that's your job so so if such a small percentage is going to healthcare where's the rest of it going hmm? <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> I have no idea. I think that's all of for all of us to guess, right? I'm not minister of finance in, <laughs> in any country. So, who knows? Okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And for people who let's say people like in the diaspora or maybe people like yourself who are born back home have moved over to the west end and now are interested in doing some stuff back home to especially in this healthcare kind of space. What ways do you feel people can best get involved or help or what they can do you know to improve things i mean that's a really good question um which i have not given too much thought of if i'm being honest because i do a lot of work by virtue of the different organizations that i've worked with right and that i continue to work with so i probably would say um finding either ngos that are trusted um finding yeah finding ngos or different organizations that are going directly to those different countries and obviously on causes that you care about and um either volunteering your time or volunteering your skill set or volunteering obviously your financial resources so there are different ways in which you can volunteer right um, and i think that's something that i quickly had to demystify myself right so sometimes people think oh i maybe i don't have the money to donate and it's not always money that is needed yes money is needed but the other ways in which you can give we all have <coughs> value and a skill set that you can provide whether that be in finance or medicine or sales you're in sales or mm. anything to raise capital or do you know what i mean like there's so many different ways that you can help um an ngo a company um to be able to increase or scale its impact um yeah No, definitely for sure, for sure. And in a way you said that you haven't given it much thought this particular question, but you've answered it very succinctly and very well because that's literally what you've done. Like you you literally went and volunteered and offered up your time and skills. Um and that's definitely something that if you if you don't feel like you necessarily have the financial mm. resources to help out, you have 
you can free up some time and there's other ways offer skills whatever my wife done something similar she went uh, to kenya mm-hmm. and for God, how long was it this was before i met her but it was like during the summer here so that went for six weeks or something like that and was doing some work with like local entrepreneurs there as well some kind of, it's like consulting work right. um and that ties in with what you said about entrepreneurship as well being one of the three parts of the intersections um that I've needed anyway to elevate and to push things towards back home. So um, yeah, for sure. So definitely. And on that actually, on the entrepreneurship side of things, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in this uh, biology, biotech kind of space, uh, do you have any in like advice on what are what would be maybe some of the best areas to, best areas is so what's the word I don't even know because there's a lot of different issues and mm-hmm. like what's best one thing is good one you know loads of things are bad and need improvement or whatnot but maybe areas of focus mm-hmm. that would be maybe the best areas of focus for someone um that might be involved interested in like doing some kind of biotech startup or business something um, what would be the best areas of focus to I mean again it'll have to come back to what you're passionate about right I could talk about what I'm passionate about mm-hmm. right and if you if anyone gets any inspiration from that then great but I biotech is vast i particularly am passionate about personalized medicine and what essentially that is is that in the near future i mean it already happens now to some degree or to some extent but in the near future we're going to focus on personalized medicine i.e your treatment is going to be tailored to you tevin right and that is taking into account your genetic component taking into account phenotypically so what your body actually expresses and taking into account any infections, diseases, whether that be it, God forbid, cancer or anything and how to treat those diseases. Right. So what I'm passionate about is very much how little or how small proportions of women and black people, again, expands to quite a lot of races that are considered as underrepresented are involved in be it clinical trials or be it um, how much our genetic data is being considered when these drugs are being developed. The UK at the moment accounts for only 2% participation in clinical trials. Um, In all clinical trials, 76% of participants are white and only, I think, globally 11% are black. Now, as... the black community we have our trust issues with pharmaceutical companies and i fully understand that but i state all this to say that when chemotherapy is currently being developed it's taken into account people who have been who have participated into those clinical trials Mm. if our genetic data has not been taken into account when creating those new drugs that means that we have been left out in the creation of these new chemotherapy drugs what are the effects of that? That means that eventually, I'm not wishing this upon anyone, but if any of our family members fall ill and need access to chemo drugs, yes, we would have access to the chemo drugs, but would it be best tailored to us? High chances are no. Does that put us at a risk of having higher adverse events and higher adverse reactions? High chances are yes. Does that mean that our treatment is less suitable and therefore has potentially less suitable outcomes than other participants who participated in the clinical um, trials, again, high chances are yes. So the same way women have had this movement, right, in terms of 
when I mean the examples such as like when car seats, for example, um, the seatbelt was created, mm. it was all done tested on men and not with women dummies. So that meant that for a long period of time, if a car crash happened, a woman was more likely to actually suffer higher injuries because the car seat was obviously not tested with her body frame in in mind that increases the potential proportion of women who may end up even dying right from car accidents it's essentially what is being what could be played out with um when it comes to you know access to all these different drugs and therapies so my passion <laughs> is really focusing on how do we bring in more of our genetic data into this pool in the creation of different drugs and therapies um, so that when these therapies are created um, we have a fighting chance <laughs> so yes and I know that it's obviously a very nuanced conversation and there's so many different assets to it but it is the mix of biology and technology with the advent of technology now we're able we, we, we should be able to bring in different samples and people who've already been tested or people who already have specific diseases and you know to try and find different ways to include that genetic data and creating this platform whereby all of us are taken into consideration so that eventually um, when all these therapies are being created they're created with us in mind that's that's amazing thank you so much for that that's very insightful again something else i've never really thought of like that and it brings a totally different angle mm. <laughs> <laughs> totally different angle that i've literally never considered right. uh, when it comes to when it comes to healthcare mm. and medicine and clinical trials and whatnot so mm. thank you for that uh, let's caveat a little bit mm -hmm. onto entrepreneurship yes and that's something I very, very much believe in as well. Mm -hmm. Similar to yourself, I feel like entrepreneur. I th I'm a strong believer that entrepreneurs hold the answer to most of the world's most pressing issues. Absolutely. Um, very often, public sector is very s too slow mm -hmm. um, to react and to public sector doesn't innovate as much as the private sector, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I feel like there's loads of loads of examples of really cool startups that are tackling some of the world's most major issues. Um, I want to touch on entrepreneurship quickly mm -hmm. for a bit. So, with yourself, so you've um been involved in the business world in like i said a few different capacities as a co-founder as a director as a non-exec mm -hmm. director um right now as a consultant so in a, quite a few different capacities mm -hmm. can you speak especially as you're in your experience as a co-founder mm -hmm. uh what you've learned about running um businesses that are that have that social angle that's the social entrepreneurship what you learn about that specifically social entrepreneurship um well, specifically businesses, because the businesses you founded have both had, um, like the they, they both had um, social goals, I should mm. say, to them. True. Um, so, any any lessons that you've learned from running th those businesses? I think I'll start off by saying I believe that profit and impact can coexist under the same roof. Um, sure. I don't believe you have to sacrifice one at the expense of the other. Hence, I have. I, I'm, I mean, I don't know if anyone has heard, read this book called Dead Aid. I am very much against giving handouts. Um, so I'm very much pro-business and pro-making profit. But also, I don't believe you make profit at the expense of people, right? So the businesses I've run, 
all founded, co-founded, um, we can all debate their level of success in different metrics, right? So the first one I started was called Northwest Biotech Initiative. And at the time I did not even call myself an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> that term was put upon me. And I remember oh. thinking, what? <laughs> at the time I was still a PhD <laughs> student. This was in 2014, I believe. And it was aimed at supporting students who were scientists, but who wanted to explore careers outside of academia. Because essentially, that's what I was, right? So it was like, well, this is what I want. So I'm going to start creating events or hosting events to address this issue. And soon, before I knew it, like thousands of students were attending the events and um, companies were recruiting and we were getting sponsorships. And then I decided, okay, hang on, this is actually, well, not I decided, someone actually said to me, I was like, this is actually a business. And I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> not consider that, but sure, let's do it. Um, in that business, I learned uh, the power of building community and the power of bringing people together for a mission and a cause. Because obviously I was not being, everyone was a volunteer. We were not getting paid. I was not getting paid. Um, so really defining that mission and defining that why especially if you're building something for a social cause is so important because that is what everybody's buying into and that is why people are working the crazy hours that they're working because everyone that was doing anything um with nbi at the time was a phd student and that in itself is very demanding um, until it came to a point where I did not have the headspace to lead it anymore because I had to really focus on my PhD. <laughs> I was like, I need to actually finish this PhD. <laughs> so yes, I think I definitely would say that. And I think, crazily enough, that I would call that a success because it's still running today. I'm not running it. Mm. And it's no longer registered as an actual business per se. It's um, still running in a different sort of model, um, very much on the University of Manchester and... I actually spoke at the event last week. Um, no, actually, what? No, Tuesday. Yes, Tuesday. Yes, yesterday. Um, yeah, yesterday. <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> yeah. That goes to tell you the number of things <laughs> I do. I could not like, keep track of days. It's like yeah. it happens, and that's that. Okay, so yeah, I spoke at the event this week. <laughs> Let's go with that. And I, when I was chatting to them, they wanted me to come up or they want me to come up for their next event um, in February. And it's a women in STEM event. And they were like, yeah, we can pay your travel. We can pay this. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? When I started this in 20, we couldn't pay <laughs> anything. Yeah. But, you know, it was a very proud moment. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's great to see that it's carrying on to deliver that impact. But then they, that in itself is the mission and the vision. And that's where people would gather and gravitate towards. I also learned my areas of development <laughs> as a leader. And yeah, still definitely working on that. On, on that. Next, um, I would say I got involved in another startup that was mitigating unconscious bias um, in the recruitment space. And alongside a co-founded a CIC, community interest company, um, looking at engaging with, well, increasing women and girls' participation in STEM, people who are neurodivergent, and people from black and ethnic minority um, backgrounds. There, <laughs> I would say I learned, that was really, I would say my startup bootcamp, very much startup mm. bootcamp. I did everything from, uh, when I say I did everything, it's not like I did everything for the companies, no. I mean, the things I got involved in, 
I was involved in pitching. I was pitching, um, I think the startup in itself raised about 150,000 pounds, I think, from a mixture from angel investors as well as from competitions that um, we won. I was involved in sales, literally it's 360. So you're doing, one day you're doing, hell, probably even in the same day, you're doing sales in the morning, you're doing pitching in the afternoon, you're doing marketing in the evening and preparing for the next day. And it really taught me the different layers of starting a business, right? So we employed some people not on a full-time basis more as contractors and again it's just managing those relationships you're managing the brand that you're building you're managing your own self and yeah there i would definitely say i learned that was startup bootcamp you're doing financial modeling you're looking at the profit you're looking at the pricing you're talking to investors you're talking about raising your next round your yeah we did so many different things so we pitched at the palace in front of um quite a few different royals um uh, that was one of the duke of york's <laughs> um <laughs> events that you know probably should not really talk about but hey it was a proud moment um we were on the gchq and wire accelerator i think it had a four percent acceptance rate so we got on that we were on the 360 lab accelerator there we won a hundred thousand euros i was just pitching at that competition again probably had probably like five out of i don't know a thousand people that applied um won um i think there was a entrepreneurship world cup that we won again pitching so public speaking in itself I learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about how I work, learned a lot about what it means to be public facing. Um, I've pitched at 30 a, a business for 30 seconds and I've pitched a business for three minutes. So now when people say to me, Elsa, can you speak for 10 minutes? I'm like, what am I going to say for 10 minutes? <laughs> like that feels <laughs> long to me now yeah. because uh, yeah, you've learned how to do all of that. So yes, I would definitely say there I learned what it truly means to do it, to, um, try and create a business out of nothing right because it's that's what it is you're literally going against the wind and you're trying to create something out of nothing so that was that experience um non-exec roles i am on a few boards um university of salford i'm on the i'm a council member so it will class as a non-exec role um science and industry museum i am a advisory board Smart Works Greater Manchester, a charity that supports women to get back into work <coughs> through coaching and um, uh, through providing them with outfits for interviews, um, even makeup, bags, shoes. And this is something that really, really is close to my heart, not just because I love fashion, <laughs> which I do, <laughs> but very much because the power of an outfit to change your your whole confidence and you see women who have been out of work for years, who have come out of abusive relationships, who literally their confidence might be, you know, trailing on the floor and being able to take them through that process of <coughs> rebuilding themselves. I think the most important tool a woman can ever have is to be financially independent, um, married or not. Obviously, people have their different opinions about this, but that's my own different opinion. That's my own opinion. Um mm. I believe you should choose to work because you want to or because you've decided to. Again, this is the whole point of choice, right? 
be able to and say, no, I don't want to, rather than not work because I can't or because there's some other factor inhibiting. Like if today I decided I don't want to work, that's a personal choice. Mm -hmm. But I know that tomorrow if I wanted to work, I could get up and go and work. But for someone to say, I can't because I can't, that's different. And I definitely think that all women should be able to do that. So there I'm a trustee. Um, Megan Markle is actually one of the patrons of the charity. And um, those roles have taught me a different level of strategy and very much what we see today in museums, in universities and charities and whatever. These are things that have been planned, what, three, four years out, right? Mm -hmm. So today we're planning next however many couple of years we're not planning what's happening tomorrow or next year mm. and so it has forced me to really i mean i used to say that i was very strategic but now it's having to go into another level and really planning your moves and your steps and the why of why you do what you do so yeah those are the three different I mean, obviously, now as a consultant, but that's a different point. But <laughs> let's stop there. <laughs> that's good. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. All right. I want to uh, let's move on a little bit, actually. So, with what sort of a world do you envision? Wow, these questions that you're coming <laughs> up with. What sort of world do I envision? I envision a world. <clears throat> where I will start by it, women can choose to do what they feel like doing at any point because of because that is what they want to do. That whether that be it working or not working, whether that be going in science, technology, engineering, and maths, or going into I don't know the arts, but just that choice um, where we can all have access to the same opportunities. Obviously, the impact of that are being able to have your financial freedom, have your financial independence, but obviously you go down into the pay gap and all those different things. So that's a diff another layer. But that's the first thing I would say, right? And I would say women of all cultures um, and all religions. I envision a world where my people, as I like to call them, or Africans, um, are able to move in spaces and create and have creations that work for them. You know, invent um, things to, well, solutions to problems in the way that works for them, right? As we've seen, what is created in the West does not necessarily mean that it's going to work um, in the Global South. In so many ways, actually, the Global South has some inventions and innovations that work that are actually light years ahead so for example one of them is mobile money and that is something that from a tech entrepreneurial point of view um, I studied quite a bit in terms of what was working in like I think it's called M-Pesa in Kenya and mm. you know in, in a lot of different countries and that that's not the case here and that works there right so yes uh, that's definitely number two and I think number three I would say a world where we're all healthy Right, um, because health is wealth. Right, again, my opinion. Um, a world where we have equal access to. If I felt ill today, I have equal access to the same treatments and the same quality of the treatments. Right, which is why I keep, I'm going back down to that. 
you know, granularity of it. Like I could have access to the same treatment, but if that treatment is not suitable to me, then, you know, it's still subpar. Mm. So yeah, those are the three things I'll say. Perfect. What advice would you give to someone who's trying to drive change in whatever industry or field that they're in? I said this over the weekend. I would say, number one, know your lane and stay in it. I was fortunately en fortunate enough to find or know my lane quite early enough. And it wasn't always considered as, you know, the scientist was as sexy as it is today. And somehow it's <laughs> 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 become something interesting. And I'm like, okay. Mm. Um, so it's not to be phased by you know, the waves um, and all the different, it's just knowing who you are and knowing that lane and staying in it. And I would say also knowing when to push and also knowing when to exit. Knowing when to push as in, okay, is this just an opportunity wrapped in a problem and it's a problem I can solve and I'm going to stay and solve it. But also knowing when time's up and this is as far as the road is going to go on this particular problem and that's a personal decision to make so yeah great perfect and finally as we prepare to wrap up what's next for you in your journey oh what's next for me <laughs> um i definitely will be working on solving the problem of personalized medicine and bringing in our genetic data into different ways to create more efficient therapy for all people um, that will probably be the primary thing I'll be working on. Um, but I will continue staying involved in doing, you know, all the different impact things that I do, um, whether that be it talking about um, science and entrepreneurship and policy in the different ways and equality for women and all the things that come with it. Um, I still will do that. So that wouldn't change. Perfect. Okay, that's that's that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming to the podcast once again, Elsa. Uh, that was amazing. <laughs> I learned a hell of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like some of the things you said, yeah, and the way you said that, I was thinking, well, I've never looked at it like that before. So thank you so much for coming on once again. It's very much appreciated. Um, as we wrap up, have you got any final words that you want to share? And also, if anybody wants to keep up to date with yourself and your work, how can they best do so? Sure, so I'll start with that. Uh, on all socials, I'm at Elsa Zakang. So Elsa as in Princess Elsa. <laughs> and <laughs> um, yeah. My surname is Z-E-K-E-N-G. And so yeah, at Elsa Zakang on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, um, and a lot. Any passing words, no, just stay true to yourself and change will come. Perfect. Thank you very much for coming to the podcast once again. If you are listening and if you haven't subscribed and liked the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this on yet, please do. It really, really does help us with getting out these inspirational stories, these inspirational people out as far and wide as possible. So please do like, subscribe and leave us a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. But that's that for now. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of 1000 Voices. We had the amazing science entrepreneur, a.k.a. Dr. Elsa Zakeng. This is 1000 Voices and for now, people, we're out.